Hello and welcome to season two of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident. Monday to Friday with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator of the TBD Conference. Interviewing powerful people is easy, but that's not the Mouthwash way. Instead, we're exploring the less obvious elements of power this season. What's really driving the world? Who's working behind the scenes to keep the wheels on? Who's messing things up? What's hard and soft power during a pandemic mean? Who's got power? Who wants it? How do you get it? We're exploring it all. Joining me every episode is a smart cookie of my choosing, and tonight's cookie is none other than Dory Clark. Dory Clark writes best-selling business books and speaks to top business leaders about their teams, leadership, amongst other things. She has been called one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world and is incredibly, incredibly sought after, so I'm very, very pleased to have her. Welcome to the show, Dory. How are you doing? Hey, Paul. I'm good. Great to be speaking with you. Good to have you as well. Before I chat more with Dory, uh, let's talk about where we are and how you can get involved. Twitter Spaces is still a beta product um, from Twitter, so let's explore it a bit. Uh, we're all on the mobile app at the moment, although it does work on the desktop as well. Um, the top bit is called The Nest, and that's where I or any speaker can post tweets like the ones you see at the moment. Mouthwash uses this to discuss them in a section called Desert Island Tweets. Uh, you can click through, follow accounts, links, etc. It's pretty handy and a unique feature to Twitter Spaces. Um, you can see all your beautiful faces and the speakers are at the top. Spaces allow up to 11 people at one time to have a microphone, including the host. So you can still have a really good chat with multiple voices, but it's not a free-for-all and a nightmare to manage. Um, you can request the mic in any space you're in by clicking the mic in the bottom left-hand corner, although Mouthwash is more of a show format, so we actually take questions via the, ha the hashtag Mouthwash Show. Um, if you click it in the title, actually, it's blue at the moment, so uh, it'll save you some tapping. So if you want to ask a question now or throughout the show, feel free. Twitter has also recently introduced a slew of monetization features, so you actually know they're really serious about spaces. So check them out, whether it's for yourself, a brand, or in the future. Um, okay, time to share out the space, so please join me and click the icon on the bottom right, the staple with an arrow pointing up. Um, that will let you know, uh, that will let the world know rather, that people uh, should enter the space, and that's an important part of what we're trying to do here, because for every person you entice into the space, a tree actually gets planted courtesy of the smart cookies over at Ecology, who make offsetting uh, carbon footprints super easy, whether it's for your business or personal. Elliot and the team are great partners to work with. So, if you want to find out more about Ecology, you just need to go to ecology.com and that's e-c-o-l-o-g-i.com um, but for now click the up arrow with a staple click share via tweet and just say live now or whatever you feel like putting say paul's talking too loudly not enough whatever you want uh, but put it out there and uh, then we'll get some more people in people usually sort of trickle in the algorithm um, and how sort of twitter works um, is still working through it but basically the more people in the space the more it pushes out because the people know each other and that sort of thing so important parts to do thanks also to shell for sponsoring the show shell recently published a target to be a net zero emissions energy business by 2050 or sooner obviously in step with society you can find out more about how shell is powering progress over at shell.com forward slash powering progress right on to uh time to shower dory with a disgusting amount of emojis while i tell you more about her so if you click the heart with a plus and begin showering her uh while i tell you more about uh, please don't shop stop until the end uh, so if you're ready steady goes click the heart pick an emoji keep it going all the way through okay Named in uh, the world's top 50 business thinkers, Dory is no stranger to the boardroom or the stage. Author of multiple books, including Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You and Stand Out. Uh, she also writes for Inc. Magazine and she got ranked um, for uh, number one for leadership, which isn't surprising when you find out that Dory has also been a presidential campaign spokeswoman uh, and still teaches at both Duke University and Columbia University's business schools. 
Dury's client roster reads like Davos who's who from Google to Microsoft to the World Bank. The New York Times called Dory uh, an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. Aside from a Newsweek podcast, Dory also frequently contributes to the Harvard Business Review, who also published her latest book, The Long Game. It's also available for pre-order. We're going to talk about that at the end of this mouthwash. I am honoured to have you here, Dory. Thank you so much for joining us. What was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning? The first thing that I thought of when I woke up this morning was whether or not I would go take a walk because I woke up earlier than expected and I figured I would do something healthy and indulgent simultaneously. Oh, wow. A walk is indulgent for you? <laughs> it is because mostly I mostly I spend my life answering email. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I bet, you, I bet you have a few calls on your time. Right. Okay. Um, how have the last 18 months been for you? You know, the pandemic wasn't my favorite. <laughs> I live in New York City and uh, it was it was just a little depressing here because this was sort of the epicenter of uh, people fleeing in a very Chaucerian sort of way to yeah. the countryside. And uh, it was, um, you know, I was I was uh, concerned, but not terribly panicked, but it felt like pretty much everybody around me was panicked. So uh, it, it meant uh, a lot of time alone with my cats. Now, are you in London, Paul, or I where am, are you yes. based? Uh, yeah, so London, how, was, how was London? Did people, did people clear out there or not so much? Um, a few did. It's been a really interesting sort of um, period because I actually uh, go to work in a, a co-working space called Fora, and they're sort of on the more luxury side of it. So it's not a wee-worky type of situation. It's a bit more... Um, you know, they, they sort of get wellness and that sort of thing. So they actually focus very early on at getting um, things COVID secure and that sort of stuff. And they're very into the wellness. They have a HEPA filter. So they were sort of ahead of the curve on that. But they're in a, a place called Shoreditch, in case anyone doesn't know. That's pretty central to London, slightly east. Um, and their whole sort of like shtick, they're, they're sort of in the centre and the hub of like different industries. So they're actually surrounded by massive offices, which obviously have glass windows. So you can see exactly who's in it. So I can still tell you it's still pretty quiet in London. As much as we're all trying to sort of open up and get the economy pumping, I believe. Um, we, uh, yeah, I, th I think a lot of people are working from home. A lot of people did escape to the country, but they had sort of like come back and, you know, went to go and live with their parents again and that sort of thing. I think those people are back in town, but whether or not they're all coming back to the office, I think has yet to be seen. Yes, yes, it's it's definitely going to be an interesting process. Yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a really interesting time because obviously we just got the news on the nineteenth that it's like everything's open, go out lick each other and that sort of thing. But there are a lot of people who are quite sort of scared to do that. So it's it's a, it's an interesting time to sort of figure out and you know figure out your own risk profile and all that sort of thing. Let alone are your friends anti-vaxxers and that sort of stuff. So all all interests, but yeah. Yes. Um, let's talk about you for a bit. What shaped you on early? early on to be the person that you are today, do you think? Well, probably, probably a, a lot of factors, but um, one, of, one of the bigger things for me when I was young was that I grew up in a really small town and I just felt a little bit oppressed by that and wanting to get out. So mm. I remember having a lot of motivation around wanting to find, find something different, you know, find kind of a, a bigger a bigger world or a bigger uh, stage to play on. And so I, I uh, just hustled to get out of my town as quickly as I could. Mm. Oh, I'm going to talk about that word later, hustle. Um, what, what do you think the most powerful force in your life was um, to sort of get out of that sort of realm? What sort of called you, if that made sense? Uh, well, I mean, I was never 
a big fan of my town. It felt just kind of kind of boring and oppressive. And mm. I lived in an area where uh, there were not there were not a lot of other kids. I mean, I was sort of ambivalent about other kids anyway, but <laughs> nonetheless, <laughs> I had to spend a lot of time alone. Uh, so I, I didn't I didn't love it from the beginning, but really the um, the super big impetus where the sort of generalized desire to leave became an acute desire to leave was when I was a young teenager. I realized I was gay and I was like, Oh God, this is not, this is not the place for that. <laughs> so I decided I needed to, to put myself in an environment that would be a little bit more uh, supportive. Yeah. Same thing. I came from a very small town, actually, Billericay in Essex. So sort of not out in the sticks, but sticks-ish, I always say, sticks adjacent. Um, and um, I actually bolted to go over to um, Los Angeles, um, sort of oh, wow. very early on, 21 and that sort of stuff. Didn't, didn't really go to escape just, to, you know, just to sort of see the gay mecca, as it were. But it, very much in hindsight, I'd be like, maybe I was, you know, that sort of thing. But, but I think a lot of that shapes a, a young person where you are in that sort of age, definitely. And if you move and travel, I just see those people do different things with their lives not saying that that has to be how it happens I, I just see more of it but um but yeah super super sort of interesting um parallels i think when it when it comes to travel and sort of what they do later on in business let's, let's definitely um, i i'm about... oh, just a quick question paul do you do you did i get this right do you spell your your town's name is it b-i-l-l-e-r-i-c-a is that right uh, with another Y on the end. So, yeah, it comes from Billerica, but that's the original. Um, sorry, this must be deadly boring for people. But, um, yeah, um, it comes from Billerica, um, Latin. And then, um, yeah, well, they added a Y. And it is twinned with somewhere in America, but I forget where it was. But Yeah, um, it's, well, it's Massachusetts. That's and, it, Massachusetts. Which is where yeah, I used yeah. to live. And I, I didn't realize that there was sort of a uh, an English... I mean, everything is an English analog in New England, but uh, but I never actually heard of the town, so that's that's just fun. Cool. I, I remember um, googling it uh, when I found that out because somebody else mentioned that when we were over there because LA is such a crockpot of people and that sort of stuff, and I was just like, oh yeah, Google it, and it, they're nothing alike. <laughs> I was yes. just like, I don't know who twinned this, but like, sure, why not? And that sort of thing. Um, right, before I have too much fun, let's dive into the world of work and where we are sort of right now. Um, the, the figures sort of range um, geographically, but um, between 33 and 58% of people um, want to change their job or would change their job for slightly, quote unquote, better conditions. Most people are in jobs they don't really give a rat's ass about. Do you think, uh, how do we change this? Or is the world sort of destined to have a stack of freelancers? <laughs> well, you know, I actually do kind of think that the world is destined to have a stack of freelancers. Uh, I mean, to me, it seems like an almost inexorable trend. And now that people are working from home, it it's in some ways almost indistinguishable, right? It's like, are you are you actually a free you know a freelancer with one client, or are you a freelancer with multiple clients? Like mm -hmm. the work conditions are the same, so. I sort of feel like we are we are moving in that direction no matter what. And a lot of my work is helping people think about that and prepare for it, frankly, um, because, you know, I'm sure th there, there will always be people that prefer working within a company for whatever reason, you know, dispositionally or, or whatever. But um, the truth is, it is expensive for companies to provide benefits. And why would you do it if you didn't have to? <laughs> I just think the trend is moving in the, in the direction of a heavily freelance uh, workforce. And we need to empower ourselves to be ready for that eventuality. 
Yeah. Uh, everything I read, we're, we're still overworking at home. Do you have any advice for people who sort of find themselves in this situation? Freelancers especially, but how, how do people in jobs also manage up? Yeah. Well, this is certainly something that I've been dealing with personally for a long time. Um, I started my business in 2006 and have worked from home since then. Uh, so the question of how do you delineate the boundaries and how do you figure out what's work and what's not work um, is, is definitely a tricky question. I used to, you know, sort of have a, have a saying or a way to think about it. And I actually think it's, it's probably still accurate, which is that when it comes to, to working from home, uh, it's, it's actually really hard to find anybody who's in the middle. It's usually that they, they can't turn it off or they can't turn it on. And it's just like one, one or the other, you know, the people who can't turn it on are the ones that keep, keep getting distracted and playing with their dog and doing laundry. And they're really unproductive. And those are the people that really probably should go back to the office because they need the structure, they need the environment. And hopefully they have the self-awareness to know that so that they can pick an environment that is optimal for them. Yeah. The can't turn it off people, which I would probably put myself into that category, are the folks that, you know, it's fine. Yeah, you can you can work from home, uh, but you kind of never stop working from home. And uh, I think that the key there is that we need we need rules, because if we treat everything as a bespoke circumstance, there is always going to be something urgent. There is always going to be. Uh, some exception that gets us to bend uh, what our stated preferences are. We need to create rules about I, I do not work past 7 p.m. or I, mm -hmm. I, I always do this or I never do that. And uh, we need to take the thinking out of it and, and create structures so that we are forced to do the right thing mm -hmm. to protect ourselves. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about the current book, Entrepreneurial You. Um, it's helping people realize they can make a living on their own, showing them how. Um, you have interviewed a slew of smart people and met uh, smart people throughout your, your career and that sort of thing. Give us an idea of who uh, and, and tell us what interested you the most and why when you were writing the book. Well, when I think about Entrepreneurial You and writing it, um, there, were, there were a lot of cool folks. I, I did more than 50 uh, interviews and case studies in it, uh, talking to different different entrepreneurs who were making money in in creative ways that helped them essentially de-risk their business and de-risk their lives. But uh, just to take a podcasting example, because this is uh, this is apt for the moment, uh, one of the folks that I profiled in Entrepreneurial U is John Lee Dumas, who's the uh, creator of the Entrepreneurs on Fire podcast, which is a popular business podcast for folks who don't know it. And one of the things I love about his story, I mean, first of all, uh, he was in the, the U.S. military. And when he got out, you know, like a lot of people, like a lot of us, he didn't really quite have the vision. He tried, you know, he tried some real estate and tried working in a tech company and this and that. And, you know, none, none of it was really taking. And I, I think we all have to realize that there's a lot of experimentation that's involved. Um, but something he did that was very cool was he was a big fan of podcasts. And so he asked the question, which I think is a good one. Um, you know, we can't always follow our passion per se, but I think it is worth asking the question, how can I take something I genuinely like and enjoy and see if I can somehow make a living from it, or at least make a living adjacent to it. And so he was a big podcast listener and he got, you know, hot on the idea of learning how to do it. But what I really love and what's powerful for me about the story 
is that the conventional wisdom at the time was, you know, podcasts are great, do it. It's great for networking. You know, it's really fun, but you will never make money at it. And that is what everyone, even the best in the field thought at the time. Mm. But John was able to look at the problem a little bit differently. And uh, he saw a gap in the market, which is there were lots of weekly podcasts. There were no daily podcasts uh, talking about what he wanted in terms of entrepreneurship. And I know, Paul, you <laughs> you have a daily show, so God bless. You are, <laughs> you are working it. Uh, but what John realized really early on, this is like 2013 or so, is that you can – advertising revenue is based on monthly downloads. It's not unique uh, listeners. It's, yeah. it's downloads. And so if you 7X the number of shows, then you automatically 7X the number of downloads. All of a sudden, do you want to give yourself a 7X raise? And uh, he was able to be massively more financially successful by you know, just, just amping up and doing, you know, doing something different, doing something more that other people had not thought about or were not willing to extend themselves that far. And mm -hmm. he's been able to build a fantastic business from it. So I'm a big fan of questioning assumptions, questioning conventional wisdom, and uh, you can get some really great results. Yeah. Um, just sort of staying on that theme for a sec. I forget who told me the quote, but um, it, it stuck with me. Uh, there's nothing more addictive than a monthly paycheck. Uh, <laughs> I can definitely attest to this um, and sort of see friends who are on a treadmill of life that complain about their jobs, but don't really change or make the leap. Um, how do you think people recognize that they're stuck in the sort of like walk forward mode? Well, I think when people are stuck, um, I think Mostly they recognize it. I think the problem is just that they don't know what to do about it. And mm. so therefore you may not want to really dwell on it um, because it is, it is frankly depressing to dwell on a problem that you don't have a solution for. But, um, but, you know, I remember going to a friend's new year's party a few years ago and everybody was going around, you know, it, it being new year's and they were, you know, the question prompt was, you know, what, what are you looking forward to in the new year? And, you know, what's, what's your vision? What do you see? And like out of this group of maybe a dozen people, I don't know, maybe six or seven were like, wow, I feel like I'm in a rut. I feel like I'm stuck. And I mean, first of all, I was like, God, get me out of this room. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but second, I was like, wow, you know, this is, this is really common. You know, a lot of people, smart people, you know, people with, you know, with, you know, we're not, we're not talking about like professional cement mixers here. You know, these are, these are professionals, but they are not happy. And mm. I think it's, it's a, it's a sad place to be. I don't want that for anybody and we can do better. You know, I think I, I wrote a book, my first book about re it was called reinventing you is about professional reinvention. And, you know, I think sometimes people, um, you know, they maybe try to give themselves a hall pass or something because it's, oh, well, you know, I can't reinvent myself. I have to, you know, I have the mortgage and I have the this and the that and all the reasons they can't do it. And, you know, all, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, you know, whatever your, whatever your story is, uh, I believe you. It is 100% true in the moment. But the issue is that I think we sometimes falsely tell ourselves that reinvention or making a change in our lives is something that, you know, has to be big, it has to be dramatic, and it has to happen, like, pretty much overnight. And the truth is that, 
for successful reinventions, the best ones oftentimes, particularly for people who do in fact have obligations and commitments and whatever, which is, you know, frankly, most middle-aged people, um, the best reinventions are actually slow reinventions where you bide your time and you do small, strategic, subtle changes. And when you do that, it enables you to make a transition that is not a leap. It's not a jump. It is a saunter. And I think that's a lot safer and frankly, a lot better. Yeah. I, I want to talk about that a little bit later as well in the new book and that, but I, I really found entrepreneurial you refreshingly honest. Number one, uh, it is 254 pages of what I call first practical steps uh, that really help people take that, as you call it, leap into self-employment and sort of becoming more sort of self-sufficient and that sort of thing. Um, it's a big ask right now for a lot of people psychologically, I think, but you've, you've said the sort of first practical steps are a good one. What, what do you think people should do before taking the leap? What's, what's the one thing that you need to sort of do to start with? Well, if, if somebody wants to become self-employed, um, I think, you know, I mean, this is in some ways, this is not, this is not one thing, but it, it is a complex of things that is really essential. And that is they should, they should strive to find product market fit. You know, meaning, this is, of course, the, the term of art uh, that's popular in Silicon Valley circles. Basically, it means ascertaining if you have something that people would be willing to pay for. The, the biggest problem always is that sometimes people make assumptions, and some of them are true and some of them are not, about um, their ability to generate business from whatever whatever their thing is that they're offering. And you know, if their guess is correct, fantastic, but sometimes it isn't. And it can, it can be horrible consequences and terrifying if you, you were really set that, oh yeah, I mean, everybody's going to line up for this and then they yes. don't. Um, so I think that one of the very best favors we can do for ourselves is to, while we have a secure and safe job, uh, create small tests so that we can begin to ascertain, number one, is anybody actually interested in this thing? And number two, will they pay for this thing? Mm. And, you know, it could be as simple as, you know, let's say you want to be uh, a wedding photographer. Well, okay, maybe, maybe for your first couple of gigs, if you've never shot a wedding before, you volunteer to shoot a wedding for free. Yes. And, and first, you know, the first test of, of whether you can be a professional wedding photographer is, will anyone have you shoot their wedding for free? Because if they don't, you've got a pretty big problem. <laughs> and then you go from there. And then it's like, well, okay, they took it for free. Would they be willing to pay a little money? And then you see about that. And then, you know, will they actually be willing to pay market rates? And if they are, well, then congratulations. You actually have something that you can turn into a viable business. But I would not quit your job until you had ascertained that. Uh, that is a beautiful segue. Um, one thing that struck me when I was reading the book was the difference between spending time and investing time. I've never really thought of the two being different or putting a delineation between the two. Just using the word spend makes people think that things are being used up. That thing. How important is framing and language when making the move to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, well, I think language is important um, both for yourself and for other people, frankly, because we... we we need to do what we can to create the context so that other people really understand what we're doing and what we're capable of. Um, one of the key mistakes that I 
see people make sometimes when they're making a transition, what, you know, whether it is a transition from one uh, full-time employment gig to another, or a transition from full-time employment to self-employment, is that oftentimes we almost leave the messaging to chance. You know, we sort of assume like, oh, well, people will get it. You know, we're like, oh, they know what I'm doing, you know, or they'll figure it out. Or why should I have to explain all of this, you know? But but the, the truth is, we, we do have to explain it um, mm-hmm. because people are busy and they, they're just not paying very close attention. And frankly, they might not get it. And so if we do not proactively take control of, of our message and sort of explain, you know, very very clearly and precisely, hey, I, you know, I used to do this, I'm moving into doing this other thing, here's why, here's how the skills overlap, here's what I'm bringing to the table. If you do that, mostly, you know, it's not like people are antagonistic, they'll mostly be like, oh, okay, cool. But if you don't do that, they will come up with their own narrative, they will come up with their own explanation. And that is often to our detriment, because their explanation is not going to be as accurate or as uh, nuanced as yours is. I mean, their, their explanation might be like, oh, wow, I guess you couldn't hack it in banking. Or, oh, man, he's probably having a midlife crisis. <laughs> like, that's their explanation. So we need to be the ones telling the story and showing them what's what so that, uh, so that they actually get what we're trying to do. Mm. Um, I could be wrong, uh, but I'm pretty sure you don't mention a pet peeve of mine, the word hustle, once, in the, once in the book. I know you did earlier, and that's the thing. Was, was that on purpose in the book, or are you a fan of the word? Well, you know, I, I, it's funny. Uh, of course, um, to the point about it being uh, a pet peeve of yours, hustle has become uh, sort of emblematic in some ways. I mean, I, I personally don't think there's anything wrong with the word hustle, but it has become shall we say, redolent of bro culture in a mm. way that's unfortunate. Um, so I, I certainly think that some of the things that it connotes in our modern society about like, you know, the dude with the Lamborghini, which, yeah. you know, of course, in parentheses, is not actually his Lamborghini and he just posed next to it. Like, I mean, it's just embarrassing. But, you know, on its own, I think that... Um, it is true. I mean, it's unequivocally, unequivocally true that um, we have to work hard. Of course, you know, as entrepreneurs, um, we we can't we can't get away for a minute with thinking that oh well, you know, we you know it's it's just a cakewalk. We'll just you know make make a million dollars in uh, you know an hour a week or something like that. Mm. Um, it's important to disabuse people of that so that they understand what is really required in terms of time and effort and commitment. But uh, I also think that the kind of uh, performativity of hustle culture as it manifests in uh, Instagram and other places is a little bit distasteful. Yeah, it's so weird to me that people love it. It's because they don't know the origin, I think. When you learn the origin that sort of it came from, I think it was the 16th or 17th century, and it was about um, shaking or losing, right? Or a toss and that sort of stuff. By the 19th century, it was um, uh, about thievery and being violent or um, ruthless and that sort of stuff. And yeah. then obviously in the 1920s, you were a male sex worker. So it's kind of like, it's never had a really good like outing, but then for some reason, it's just like everyone's hustling. It's like 
it's not a good word. <laughs> it's, just, it's just really weird when it sort of comes into it. And people, you know, the Gary V's of the world and that sort of stuff that, you know, everyone's, you know, wants to be a hustler. And I'm like, that's the last thing I want to be thought of or called. And that's the thing. I just want to <laughs> hard work's fine and that sort of stuff. But it, it's, a, it's a weird one. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I feel like with, you know, with hustle, I feel like in general, I have a, a you know, a pre, uh, pre entrepreneur bros. I, I had at least a more positive connotation, but even then there's sort of irony at the heart of it because when I was growing up, I was a, a big baseball fan and uh, Pete Rose, who is a you know hall of fame baseball player, his nickname was Charlie hustle. And he was known as like, you know, the hardest working second baseman in baseball, you know, he never gave up and he'd run after every ball. And, you know, even when, even when there was like no chance he'd get the ball, he still ran after the ball just in case. And it, you know, it was very, it was very admirable. It was like, you know, the kind of the epitome of like the good hustle, like, you know, the, the guy, the guy who is just never going to stop trying to do what he needs to do in order to accomplish his job. And so for me, that was always sort of the, the, the paragon of hustliness, I guess, if you could say, but then Pete Rose, uh, became like disgraced and I think was maybe evicted from the hall of fame, if I'm not mistaken, because there was a scandal where he was betting on sports. So, you know, so much for all that. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Um, God, we're scooting through the time. Um, Right. You practice what you preach, I think is a really uh, important thing to sort of talk to. You created a self-assessment workbook as part of entrepreneurial you, which I think more books need to do more of. Um, Can you explain what that is and how it helps people? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so what, uh, what I created in the entrepreneurial you self-assessment is, um, basically a guide that, uh, that is a series of, of questions that folks can ask themselves to be able to really think through their business and their business model. And even if it's not readily apparent to them, um, there actually are for most people, even if you have a day job and are not yet an entrepreneur, there are a variety of things that you could begin to experiment with that can open up new avenues to you. Um, certainly for, you know, growing, growing your brand or growing your network, but also uh, ultimately for growing your revenue. And the more, the more you do it, the more you de-risk your situation, which I mean, I think most of us can agree that modern life is a little bit precarious. And if you, if you have um, just one income stream, you know, as, as a, an employee, or even if you're an entrepreneur, but you mostly work with like, you know, one type of client or you or you do one specific thing for them, it mm. puts you at a little bit of risk. And so the more you diversify it, just like creating a you know basket of securities in your investment portfolio, the better off you are. So um, it, it just kind of walks people th- pro- through the process of thinking it through in their own life and their own business. So as you mentioned, Paul, it's uh, doryclark.com slash entrepreneur. And thank you for mentioning it. No, I, I think it's one of those things. Books need more sort of like helpful bits. You know, you can read a book and you can get a lot from it. I think if you offer that one sort of step to like, and here's how to get going right now, that helps people even more. So when I saw it, I was like, definitely got to mention it. Um, you mentioned earlier pricing um, in the photographer example. Uh, it's a huge issue for people. I, I suffer from it all the time, figuring out how much to charge people. I take lots of people's advice, look for research and that sort of thing. Psychologically, practically, there's lots of um, issues surrounding it. Um, can you explain how people should decide how to price or time their products maybe? Uh, sorry, price their time or products. Um, and how much should they be factoring in things like the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know with the pandemic during the early days, 
um, I think everybody was panicking a little bit. I mean, we didn't, we didn't know what was happening. I mean, it could have been like the global zombie apocalypse. Um, I remember, you know, toward the, like the, you know, the middle, the end of March, 2020, I, I literally very clearly had the thought like, oh, it is entirely conceivable that I am not going to earn one more penny for the entire rest of the year. Like it is completely possible that the economy could not just, you know, have some problems, but the economy could shut down and Mm -hmm. I might not earn any more money. So, uh, so yeah, it was a time of a lot of panic for a lot of people. So, you know, I think that there was also a lot of question early on about what do you do with your, with your clients? Like what's, what's respectful and what's disrespectful, you know, and, and, uh, you know, as the pandemic wore on, people are kind of like, whatever. But I remember in the first month or two, they're like, gosh, you know, I have, you know, I, I was going to sell this thing, but is it disrespectful to sell? You know, like everybody's losing their jobs. Like, you know, is uh, like what what is gauche and what is not? Mm. Um, so we all kind of had to think about that and navigate it. I know, for instance, I, I did take the opportunity to offer some special discounts. I had a, I have a thing that I do, which is a half day strategy session with clients where we, um, you know, they send me some stuff in advance that I review, and then we spend like half day together where I help them map out a, uh, a you know a six to twelve month strategy for where they should be focusing. And so I had a, a sort of special discounted rate that I offered to people because I was doing it for the first time virtually rather than in person uh, during COVID. And I thought it would be, you know, a good revenue boost for me. Um, but but also, uh, it seemed like a thing that I could do that would be a meaningful discount to people at a time when they might want it. And I was piloting a new way of doing it. So it actually felt like an experiment uh, for me. I'm like, well, you know, let's see if I can even do this online. Let's see what that would look like. So it, it worked out for those reasons. Uh, I think the key, though, is... And certainly when there's an exigent circumstance, it makes sense to, you know, you can offer a discount, you can do whatever, but you don't want to permanently anchor your prices lower. Like that's not the goal. That's not the point. So in my book, Entrepreneurial, you actually interviewed a friend of mine named Michael Bungay Stanier, who's a, uh, you know, consultant and a coach and an author. And he told a great story about a tenant that he had learned from a friend of his and his friend had given him the advice, uh, charge fear plus 10%. <laughs> so whatever number you're afraid to say, say it, and then add even more, add 10% to it. Because the truth is most of us perennially undercharge. And so you need to reach a little bit bigger in what you're asking for. That's interesting. Just to stick on that for a second. I really like that um, you put figures in the book when talking about speaking. It's a massive bugbear of mine recently and that sort of thing. I, I have it all from all sides. I have a speaker bureau. I've done free gigs myself. I ask people to speak for free and that sort of thing at TBD for the promotion. But I always make it worth their while and that sort of thing. And I can pay what I can and that sort of stuff. Um, especially as a conference person, I'm really interested in it and that sort of thing. In this, is is the speaking world sort of broken when people charge what some make in a year for a few hours work? Isn't that I'd say a bit savage? But how do we how do we sort of fix that industry? Do we need to, or is it just another example of like rampant capitalism that we just kind of have to live with? (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, like a lot of rampant capitalism. It sucks if you're on one side of it, and it's fantastic if you're on the other. <laughs> so, you know, I, I say as someone who has, 
you know, kind of worked my way up. I mean, literally last week, Paul, uh, I, I feel very relieved. I booked my first in-person talk for 2021. Um, nice. And, uh, you know, I mean, t- 2020, I, there were lots of things that uh, I had booked, which all went virtual, as you can imagine. Yeah. And um, for the first part of 2021, it, you know, it, it was it was still virtual. People did not even as vaccines were being rolled out, people just did not feel comfortable uh, making plans around in-person events. Everything was was too unsettled. You know, there's there's lockdowns, there's uh, opening up, there's lockdowns again. So nobody felt like they could predict. But apparently, people are beginning to start to feel like they can predict. So I got an invitation to give a talk. And as it happened, this was now... Um, you know, the high, the highest fee that I've ever gotten. Uh, I, I decided during the pandemic to raise my speaker rates because uh, I came to the conclusion that the pandemic would make travel more rare and therefore more special. And so whenever anything's a little bit more scarce, it is more valued. So mm-hmm. I said, all right, I'm going to I'm going to raise my uh, my speaker fee. And this was actually the first time that I have booked uh, a gig at that fee. So and incidentally, you know, if you add in the speaker fee and then um, they asked me to, to do a couple of other uh, activities while I was there that they would pay me extra for uh, the speaker fee that I got was literally actually more than I made before I started my business. Um, so, you know, I mean, mind you, of course, that was 15 years ago. And mind you as well, uh, I, I ran a nonprofit and was severely underpaid. But nonetheless, it actually was true that for this speaking engagement, I am, in fact, getting what I got for years worth of work uh, when I was in my 20s. So it's a, it's a big change. And some people would say, you know, it's unfair, it's a broken system. What I would say is, you know what, I want more people to be able to get that. I mean, I feel like I deserve it. And I think there's other people that probably deserve it too. And the key is for people to understand the mechanics of actually what gets you paid as a speaker. It is not the quality of how well you speak, although that is important. And of course, everybody wants to listen to someone who is a good speaker. Mm -hmm. But I would call it necessary, but not sufficient. What we need to work on is building our brand and building our name recognition. That is what gets you money. And if we if we do that effectively and we understand what the metric is that we're optimizing for, then I think more people can actually do that. And, and I'm excited for them to achieve it. Mm. I, I, I think it's important. I think it's one of these things. I, I hear a lot of people say, like, I don't speak for free and that sort of stuff. When I was starting out, I spoke for free because I wanted to practice and I wanted sort of just to sort of test things out. I'm not sure people do that anymore. It's, it seems to be like we're living in a world where everything you do, put out online, a tweet, a video, and that's sort of thing, has to have some sort of monetary back coming back to you, if that sort of thing. Do you, do you see that um, in what sort of businesses are sort of expecting as well? Or do you think that's just new sort of economies that are popping up? Well, you know, I think, I think the idea of like, I don't speak for free, quote unquote, um, I, you know, for, for anybody who is, let's say, starting out as a professional speaker or something like that, um, I'm with you, Paul. I mean, I spoke for free a ton and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. What the amendment, sort of the friendly amendment that I would make is I think that is correct that one should never speak if it's a situation where you feel like you're not getting value in return. Yeah. But I think that there are 
uh, a lot of ways that you can derive value. And cash is one of them, but there's others. Um, when you're early on, there's actual real value to practicing in front of a live audience. You need that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. that's valuable. It could be referrals. It could be testimonials. It could be access to footage that the organization is filming. There's a million reasons why you might want to speak for, for no money, but it, it doesn't mean that there's no value. Yeah, uh, that, that's a hundred. I, I, that is me, how I think about speaking in a nutshell. If you don't get, if you don't pay money, that's fine, but you've got to do some sort of promotion. There's an email afterwards and that sort of stuff. You have to make it worthwhile for them or at least help them put put money in the coffers in another way and that sort of thing otherwise it's it's pointless they you know like you say you could be homeless next year and that sort of stuff yeah um you say in the book don't rush to quit your job which I, I i think that's huge you know a lot of people go like that's it i've had enough i'm out you know and that sort of thing um what do you recommend people have in place before they hand in their notice well ultimately uh, before people hand in their notice if what they're heading toward is entrepreneurship we talked about one facet of it, which is uh, establishing product market fit to the best of your ability. I think that, you know, some other some other things that can be useful. Sometimes people say, well, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur, but, you know, I have this this day job now and I, you know, I don't I don't know what I could do. I'm, I'm too busy or, you know, there's a conflict or whatever, and I can't really get started with my business. And so if that's the case, what I say is, look, there are things that you can do um, while you are working at your firm. And one of the one of the best ones that you can start to do now, which is really helpful to have in place when you start your business is your network. Because yet, you know, it is true that depending on what you want to do and depending what kind of company you work for, your company may not want you to be active on social media or, you know, they may not want you to be doing activities that they view as competitive. You know, that's that's legit. I, I get it. And it's frustrating if you want to start a business in that realm. But they absolutely cannot stop you from building your network because, frankly, that is helpful to them right now and it's helpful to you in the future. So you could take the amount of time and energy that you want to spend on developing your business and pour it into networking. You know, ask yourself, you know, create a Venn diagram. Who is it that would be helpful to my company now for me to get to know and spend time with and who would be helpful for me to get to know in the future for my own business interests and invite them to coffee, invite them to lunch, have a zoom call, whatever it is, uh, because those relationships will, will prove valuable to you down the road. Mm. And it's not something they can take away. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Um, we are coming up on our time, but I really want to talk about um, the next book. And that's the thing I really enjoyed um, uh, the long game, uh, how to be a long-term thinker in a short-term world. Um, because it, it focuses on something I think is plaguing our world, which is short-term thinking. Um, it's out on October the 7th, can be pre-ordered now at bookstores and obviously the Smiling Cardboard Assassin Amazon. Um, but can you tell us about why you why you wrote it? I can, yes. So the long game, as you said, Paul, is about, it's essentially about strategic thinking and how to pl- apply the principles of strategic thinking in our lives and in our careers. And you know, I mean, we all have seen certain manifestations of short-term thinking. I mean, we all know that, you know, no matter how mature we are, social media kind of plagues us a little bit. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, why isn't they figured it out? You know, like, what, what, what am I not getting? Uh, that's a part of it. But, you know, also for any endeavor that we undertake, you know, the, you know, the worthwhile ones, frankly, they usually do take a long time. It is annoying how long they take and really frustrating. And what I have seen, I run an online community of uh, 
smart, wonderful folks, about 600 people now, uh, called Recognized Expert. And it's about, you know, helping, helping uh, talented professionals figure out how to build their platform, get, get better known, uh, get their ideas better known. And what I've seen both in my own experience and working with those folks in the Recognized Expert community is that for anything that, that's worthwhile like that, like really investing in, in trying to get your ideas known in the public sphere, uh, it's a process with a lot of setbacks. It's a process that, that really does take time and effort. And you do not, in the early days, get a lot of feedback about it, mm. um, like hardly any. And so it's really hard in those moments to know if what you are doing is not working or if it's not working yet. And I wanted to write a book to help people really think that through so that they would not uh, unnecessarily give up too early on uh, valuable ideas that maybe just needed a little more time. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that people think that long-term thinking is just less and less possible because they say the world's less and less certain. I, I, I always counter it and I say, you've, you've never had more data. You've never had more examples or more opportunity and more people saying it's okay to fail and that sort of stuff. So I'd be like, why not try it? At least sketch it out on paper and that sort of stuff. Um, I really like chapter five in it, Thinking Waves. Can you explain that concept and why it's so powerful? I can, yeah, absolutely. So Thinking in Waves is... One of the, the topics that I talk about in the long game, and I think it's important because, you know, ultimately, especially if you think about a situation like COVID, there's a lot of people I know that just, they were beating themselves up. They're like, oh, you know, this is, this is terrible. I'm, you know, spending this time and I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not doing the work that I wanted to do or I'm falling behind or whatever. And, you know, I mean, this may be true, but I, I was, you know, I, I'd have to slap them up a little bit and say like, look, <laughs> like you had three kids under the age of eight at home. Like, what do you expect? <laughs> like, you know, be, be gentle with yourself. That, that is not the time to focus on work when you're homeschooling, you know, a bunch of uh, children prowling underfoot, you know, like mm. that's, the, that's the time to over-index on home, you know, like, like it or not, that's kind of where it's at now. But there will be other opportunities later to balance it out and to over-index professionally. And I, I think that for all of us, a mistake that we commonly make, uh, pandemic or no, is that we start doing a thing, a type of thing, and then we just keep doing it, you know? Like, you know, some people uh, can't stop networking. Like, that's all they want to do. Or, you know, some people, like, they're kind of learning addicts, and all they do is take classes and whatever. These are great things to do. Obviously, networking is great. Learning is great. You know, wonderful. But the problem is, if that's kind of the only thing you do, uh, you run into challenges. Because, I mean, if you're the person who keeps taking courses, you know, God bless, you know how to do everything in your head, but you're not actually producing anything yourself. And that's, that's where it breaks down. So we have to learn how to shift into different modes. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a time to, to sow and a time to reap. And there's a time to learn. And then there's a time to share. There's a time to network. And then there's a time to, uh, to enjoy some of the fruits of our labors. So we have to learn how to toggle between those things and between those areas of emphasis in our lives. Uh, otherwise, we become a little too monochromatic and it hinders our eventual success. Yeah, for sure. You talk in the book um, about deciding what to be bad at 
Um, I think failure is a huge issue at the moment. People just don't feel comfortable to explore, innovate. That's that's what I keep hearing. You know, now's not the time and that sort of stuff from people in jobs. Um, how can people get more comfortable with failure and sort of gaining the confidence to try new things? We are sort of coming out the, the hopefully the back end of the pandemic, but a lot of people can now start using the term. We've got to learn to live with it and that sort of thing. So, what what, what would be your advice when it comes to sort of uh, people gaining that confidence um, to embrace potential failure? Yeah, when it when it comes to failure, I mean, obviously, you know, sort of Silicon Valley ideology, notwithstanding, most regular people under normal circumstances do not like failing at anything. <laughs> like, you know, it's not exactly fun. And so um, it's interesting, though, because, you know, we might think that that's a positive, like, oh, good, you know, you want to you want to you wanna excel, you, you don't want to fail. Uh, and of course, you know, that that is positive. But like everything else, there are downsides baked into it that it's really important to be aware of. And uh, this is really drawing on the research of my friends, uh, Ann Morris and Francis Fry. Uh, Francis is a Harvard Business School professor and is an author and entrepreneur. And uh, their concept around deciding what to be bad at, I think, is really important because what they declare, and I think it's really true, is that until we are willing to decide what we're going to be bad at, uh, we can, frankly, never really be successful because a desire to be good at everything means that you're splitting your efforts and you are going to end up mediocre at everything. You can never truly excel because you can't over-index in the way that's necessary to excel. And so it, it is ultimately about making hard choices and saying, look, you know, here's what I prioritize, here's what's important, and you know, sort of forget the rest. Uh, and most people are just not willing to make those choices, but it's very powerful and important when you do. Mm, no, for sure. Um, adaptability and willingness to learn seems to be sort of core parts of the future that you mentioned in The Long Game and, and other books. Um, the World Economic Forum recently put those skills in the top 10 uh, that people need to be employable in 2025, 2030. Um, you're, you're often called an expert in reinvention. What's your advice for people who want to be more adaptable? Well, one of the things that I talk about, Paul, in, in Reinventing You is the difference between what I call capital R reinvention and lowercase r reinvention. And capital R reinvention is kind of the, the it's the type that gets all the ink, <laughs> so to speak. You know, the capital R is like, oh, my God, you were a lawyer and now you run a yoga studio or <laughs> whatever. You know, it's like the dramatic transformation. You change jobs, you change careers, you change lifestyles. And, you know, that's, that's great. That is certainly an important type of reinvention. But, uh, but frankly, it is, it's, a, it's a disruptive type of, of reinvention. And it's a kind that has a lot of um, potential for upset and for, for risk. It's, it's uh, very dramatic. And, you know, it, it needs to happen and it's important. But it's also really useful to contextualize it and to think about lowercase r reinvention. Because that is what I would call subtle, small, uh, tiny transformations that I think that most people can and should be doing on a regular basis. Because the truth is, if you, if you are very, very static in who you are, at a certain point, you reach a breaking point where it's either like, oh my God, you know, I'm totally not doing what I want to be doing. Or, oh my God, my skills are totally out of date and now I'm being fired or whatever. And it forces you into capital R reinvention. Um, but if we stay ahead of the curve, if we're proactive and we embrace lowercase r 
reinvention, if we seek out opportunities to grow, if we seek out, you know, the training, the course, the, uh, the proactive building of our network, it enables us to stay ahead of things so that we actually never are in a circumstance where we are unexpectedly forced into a reinvention, not of our choosing. Uh, instead, we can, we can move very seamlessly from one reality to another. Mm. You talk in the long game about um, strategic patience, and that is one of the words that I do love in my career because I have very little of it, but I expect a lot of it from people. Um, what's your advice for people who are lacking patience, who may want change quicker than you know it's going to come and that sort of thing? Is there any way to sort of train ourselves to be more patient? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's terrible. It's a terrible uh, plight. And it is one that I have experienced because I am not a fan of patience. I mean, it's, it's something that I've had to uh, make my peace with, but I do not love it. So I can certainly appreciate the challenges associated with it. Um, for somebody who is impatient and just, you know, wants things to happen, uh, I, I definitely relate. Um, but ultimately, you know, I, I think there's a couple things to keep in mind. One is uh, we just have to be rational. And so there, there's, of course, a difference between wanting things to go faster and expecting things to go faster. And yeah. it is really important to have our expectations in alignment with reality. Otherwise, we're just, you know, we're going to be blindsided. We're going to be making stupid mistakes if we've miscalculated things and we don't understand what is uh, normal. So I, I think that's, that's number one. And then number two... Um, the biggest issue that I see with people wanting things to be faster is, as we were talking about earlier, kind of that lack of feedback, that lack of ability to judge whether you're actually on the right track or not, which can be very uh, upsetting for people, frankly. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I like to suggest is that this is really where other people become important. This is where your network becomes very important because in the midst of the journey, you can't trust yourself anymore. You might normally have good judgment, but in the middle of a, of a tough, long journey, you're probably going to not have good judgment. You are either going to get frustrated too soon and want to give up and quit, or you might be on the other side of the spectrum and be clinging on for dear life to something that is no longer working. And it's really hard to have the, the space necessary to know which is which. And that is why you have to have a trusted cadre of friends and advisors who are not just in your corner. That's, I mean, that's important, of course. They have to be legitimately people who care about you, but also people who are knowledgeable about specific uh, professional quest that you are embarking on. And if you have that combination of people and you get feedback from them, odds are that is going to be pretty good and pretty effective feedback that is worth listening to. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Folks, it's time for Dory's Desert Island Tweets, the part of Mouthwash where the guest picks a tweet or two that's changed their mind or way of thinking in some way. So if you turn your attention to the nest, uh, Dory, this tweet is from the formidable Maya Angelou. Uh, it says, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Why did you pick this one? Yeah, I think I think this is, uh, this is a great, important one, Paul, because ultimately, you know, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of debate in the business world uh, and, and in life in general, you know, Oh, you know, how much should we follow our gut? Should we follow our gut or not follow our gut? And, you know, I think we can kind of go back and forth. I mean, you know, there's cases to be made for, uh, for both. Uh, 
but ultimately what Maya Angelou is saying is it, it kind of goes beyond that. It's saying, look, you know, don't even necessarily worry about what your gut is. Look at the evidence, but you don't have to have, you know, evidence for years, like, like respond quickly once you actually have uh, a decisive view of something, because it's really telling and it's, it's easy to talk ourselves out of understanding something. But once you have been given a glimpse that provides you with legitimate evidence, believe your senses. And that is something that can help you make better decisions faster rather than going too far down a, a negative path because you've talked yourself out of something that you, you really shouldn't have. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that's a great sentiment to leave the conversation on tonight. Thank you uh, for being part of Mouthwash, Dory. Any final thoughts or advice for the listeners when it comes to the power of entrepreneurialism and um, long-term strategy? Yeah, thank you, Paul. I, I appreciate it. I will just say that um, hopefully folks who are listening are uh, jazzed about the idea of uh, of de-risking their life and their career. But for, for those who have questions or, you know, maybe you're a little more skeptical about the, the whole endeavor, sometimes people say, oh, but, you know, building multiple revenue streams, isn't this too, you know, isn't it spreading yourself too thin? Isn't it too much diversification? And uh, what I will say to that uh, just is, you know, hopefully some reassurance is that for sure, if you if you literally were trying to do everything at once, that would be problematic. But um, but what I recommend in Entrepreneurial U is that you focus on just creating one new revenue stream per year. That is the goal. And it enables you to really wrap your arms around it and attain some mastery. And when you're, uh, when you're able to, to do that, you can then move on to building other revenue streams and, and have it be a kind of organized process. So I talk more about that, of course, in the Entrepreneurial You workbook that you so kindly mentioned. It's at doryclark.com slash entrepreneur. And Paul, I'm just so glad to have the chance to speak with you. Uh, thank you, too. Thank you for everything you do, actually. You really make some big choices for people easier. And I don't think that's easy, especially under current circumstances. Um, I often think about the cumulative effects of a person's life while I'm interviewing them, like the strings are sort of emanating from people that they've touched and changed in some way. And I think from books to your podcast, uh, I imagine yours just being a ball of red with you at the centre with offshoots everywhere. Um, so, yeah, so congratulations on an amazing career thus far. And you can find out more, as uh, Dory's mentioned, doryclark.com. Um, okay, folks, that's a wrap for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Let us know how we did. Um, use the hashtag Mouthwash Show. I am thrilled to have an amazing cohort of brains joining me for season two. I've created cur uh, curated a bevy from Babylon Health to Beauty Stacks CEO Sharmadine Reed. Up next is Chandler T. Wilson, who is an expert in artificial intelligence. He's uh, ex Walmart ex-HSBC and tiny organisation called the EU. The man knows where the power of AI is and what's possible, so I wouldn't miss a minute of that, and I would check out mouthwashshow.com for full details, downloadable calendars, links to previous episodes, which are also now podcasts, thanks to the beautiful people at Spotify, Apple Music, and all other quality podcast platforms. Once again, my thanks to the amazing Dory Clark. Follow her on Twitter, by Entrepreneurial U, and also pre-order The Long Game, which comes out October the 7th. Check her out at doryclark.com as well, and you can find all of those worksheets and a lot, lot more as well please show your appreciation one more time with a shower of emoji for dory as the lo-fi music plays us out thank you for joining and thanks to the beautiful folks over at ecology.com for planting a tree for every live listener we get in season two uh, i've been paul armstrong this has been mouthwash fresh chat that leaves you more confident only on twitter spaces have a great evening everyone
Jesus.